you have your Bibles with me, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And as you do there, by, by way of introduction, let me just say a word about how I'm reading through this opening section of Isaiah. I'm, I'm assuming that he is something like uh, Abraham that we heard this morning, heard the gospel before the gospel was preached. Or to put it in the language of the book of Numbers, here is Isaiah as one of those faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, who's gone up into the land of promise, the land of promise that we ourselves inhabit now in Christ. He's gone up, and he's looked in, and he's seen the fruitfulness of the land, and he, as it were, is brought back, like those spies, uh, a, a, a portion of that fruit. You'll remember he, they bring back a big bunch of grapes that's so heavy two men have to put it on a stick to carry it in. And here, Isaiah comes out, telling us about the land. And of course, if he's going to tell us about the land, it's a land that he is looking at from before its time. And so all he has is not the language of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the blood of the Lamb, but he has the language that has been given him through Revelation, the language of Exodus, the language of previous actions of God in history. And he uses those to talk about the action that he sees God is going to do for us that we participate in now. And he brings that back and he describes it as such in this opening of the fourth chapter, or the, actually the whole of the fourth chapter. So, Isaiah chapter 4 and verses 2 through 6. Hear God's word to us. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flame of fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for a shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Amen. I think some of you are probably familiar with some of those videos that you can find online where uh, the barber goes out into the place where the homeless men live downtown and they bring them over and they wash them and clip their fingernails and shampoo their hair and trim them up and they come forth from the barber's chair like new men. So transformed that they can barely believe it's their own face in the mirror. And you too, as you watch, are are surprised by the transformation. They barely recognize themselves, surprised by joy. The lines of their face that once were filled with sorrow and trouble are somehow lightened and lifted up. And I think that's the kind of thing that happens in this fourth chapter of Isaiah. The seven poor women whom we saw just a couple of weeks ago who had come broken and bowing in the dust to lay hold of the man begging at his feet, they get far more than they could ever ask or hope for. They are given above and beyond their expectations. And so it is with every filthy sinner. Every one of us who comes to Christ, humble to the dust, 
Like a homeless man, disheveled and in need of washing, we come, but we leave renewed and even surprised by joy and the change that He is working in us, standing upright, our countenance shining, made new. The man we lay hold of is found to be generous beyond compare. He gives, and He gives, pressed down and running over to us. And that's the picture of what's given to us here. It is that fruit of the land that is ours. It is a picture of transformation. And I I want tonight for us to marvel at the display of it here. The generosity of God as it's shown to us in verses 3 through 5. And in that, those, those verses, 3 through 5, I find four actions which the Lord accomplishes for His people. And they can be summarized as an answer to the request of those seven women. You remember they said, Only let us be called by Your name and take away our shame from us. Take away our reproach. And here I find that in these actions, He does both those things. He gives them a name and He thoroughly removes their reproach. In a fourfold act, he does the naming. He names them. He records them. He washes them. And he creates for them a new home. Those are the four things. Four verbs that, God, that describe God's action for his people. And so let us look at each of these generous acts as they come to us in the text one at a time. And we'll take them as they come. And I hope that this ancient prophetic language to describe these things will maybe add and help you to see the things that you're familiar with in a new light as they're described from Isaiah's perspective for us. I hope that it will inspire your own imaginations and and encourage you in your own walk of faith. It is a sure word of promise to us, given from the mouth of Isaiah to that people, but to us, for the Scriptures are written for our encouragement and our strength. A sure word of promise that is His and also ours in Christ. Even this very night, if we will but receive it by faith and believe upon it. And so by way of introduction, I think it is important to remember what, we, what these women here are being cleansed from. Remember, they, as much as I, the illustration I opened with is helpful to capture your imagination of what this is like, these women are not poor and homeless they were not described that way at all, at least not to the natural eye. The, the, the rottenness, as we heard this morning, was hidden from view. We can't see it at first. They would have appeared far otherwise. Remember, they're described as women decked out in extravagant finery, mincing along and tinkling with their feet the, so much jewelry that they make a noise when they walk. No, they needed first to be brought to the full revelation of their defilement. All this radiance that was theirs has to be made to rot in their sight before they can be ready for this action that God is about to do in this branch. Like the Apostle Paul, he had to come to a place where he saw what he had accounted worthy as worthless before he could be filled with the fullness that was his in Christ. He, remember, says, I had counted all that was gained but dung so that I might win Christ and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And I think we need to know this. We too need to be brought to a place where we are broken and then look for the One who can make us whole. God will do this. I think He did it to Balaam in that passage we just read a few minutes ago. He brought him low so that Balaam would be ready to be the mouthpiece of God. 
Before he gives them, before he gives us a new name, he makes us abhor first the old one, to hate it, to despise it. As Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he can't be my disciple. There must be hatred of the old way before we can love the new one. This does not happen by our own volition or choice. You and I can't stir up this hatred if we do end up self-righteous Pharisees or hypocrites. It must be the work of the Spirit upon us. God, the Spirit, moves our hearts to hate, yes, hate, that strong of an emotion, our old sinful self, and desire what He offers. He opens our ears in that way to the first Work which we see in verse 3. Look there with me. It says, He who is left in Zion passed through that, that purifying that remains in Jerusalem like those seven humbled women will be, first action, called holy. They who long to share the name of the man are given that very name right here in verse 3. They will be called holy. Holy. This is the very name that's called over Jesus at His birth. You remember in the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary while Jesus is still in the womb and says, the child that shall be born to you, His name shall be Holy. His name is Holy. It has been called the chief attribute of God. The attribute of attributes. It's the one attribute that's repeated three times when it's spoken of God. And it's repeated three times in this very book in just a couple of chapters. Isaiah will see the Lord high and lifted up. And what is the name that the angels cry out as they cover their faces? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It is a word that according to J.I. Packer signifies everything about God that sets Him apart from us. It's that which marks Him as set apart. That which makes Him not us. And that, the thing that makes Him not us, is the very thing that He says He's going to put on us. I think we have to let that sink in. Holy will be called over us. He puts the name which marks Him as infinitely different than us on us. He calls us holy. Doesn't He? calls sinners, saints. Like the high priest of old, we bear a, a, a plaque, as it were, on our head, stamped with the name of the Lord, holy to the Lord. We are His holy people. We who were without a name, we are given the most excellent, the most excellent of names, the name of names as our own, holy We, you and I, trembling, troubled over our sinful state, bowing before Him and longing for Him to give us a name, are given the best of names. He is generous beyond all compare. He sets holy on your head. Saints, He calls you. And of course, we are called to it as well. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. But don't miss this fact. He doesn't call us to that before first calling us it. He calls us holy. And then He calls us to holiness. You are made it before you are called to it. Strengthened with might in your inner man, by this name He calls you to walk. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so, Paul writes, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, the branch, the one first called holy. That's the first act, you see. You, sinful though you are, are named, and your name is holy. And secondly, you're recorded 
You're recorded. Continuing in verse 3 there. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, it says. Did you know that there is a book in heaven? There is a book in heaven. God has books. We, we know that because we run into it numerous times in Scripture. In Exodus, He talks to Moses about a book. In Daniel, we find that there are books open. In Malachi, there's a book of remembrance where names are written. And, and then finally, of course, in the book of Revelation, there are books in God's presence. And it seems to be, from all those places, some kind of book of names, which may seem an odd thing. Who takes a book and writes a bunch of names in it, right? But it's actually not all that odd if you think about it. I bet almost all of you in here have a little device in your pockets that you carry about your person that has a whole host of names in it under a thing called the contact list. And with those names, there are phone numbers and sometimes little descriptions so you don't forget who it is. They are names, Right? And why are they there? Because somehow or some way, they're connected to you. You know them. And so you've put them in there at some level. And so you want to remember them and be able to be in touch with them. It is similar to that here, but even more powerful. In the ancient world, such a list was kept for the citizens of a city. They had books that had the names of the people. And if you were in the book, then you were considered a known member of the community. You were connected to the city and the citizens there. And so you have privilege to all the rights of a citizen and the things that are given to you because you are called such and are in the book. Well, here in this book, the names are recorded. Everyone who is known by God and is a member, a citizen of His city. It says, in Jerusalem. Everyone in Jerusalem And I think that such language implies a couple of things for you and I. And I think they're an encouragement to us. First, God not only shares with you His name, He remembers yours. He remembers yours. He writes it. He literally engraves it in His book. Remember, books at the time of Isaiah were not quite as easily produced as ours with a ballpoint pen or the easy strike of a key in the print of a printer. No, books for the most of human history, were a precious commodity. Painstakingly produced. Think of quills and ink and ink-stained fingers and tired scribes hunched over a table for hours on end, meticulously writing one letter at a time. Painstakingly produced on parchment or even animal skins. It may even be here, stone and chisel that's in view. Thought ink and parchment is hard. Imagine with a hammer and a chisel writing down these names. But importantly, that means these are not mass market paperbacks. This is permanence that's in mind. Your your name written in perpetuity in the book. A citizen. A son. And secondly, all this implies God's purposed plan when he wrote down your name. You don't frivolously or haphazardly write down a name in the ancient world or write anything down in a book when it's such a hard process to produce it. No, you do so with purpose and devoted planning. When he wrote your name, it was no accident. And it came, came about by a great cost on behalf of the one who decided to create the book. He chose you and He planned the book so that it had space to include your name so that He could write it down. You see, He calls you holy. He records you in the book. 
And thirdly, Isaiah tells us that He washes you. Verse 4, the ESV uses two different verbs for one Hebrew verb behind the text. They describe the action, which is one action, in two different ways. When it, when it says, when, it, when meaning it shall surely come to pass, the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, washing and cleansing. It has a thoroughness in view, doesn't it? in this act of cleansing that's in view. He removes every single spot and stain, every reason for reproach. He washes it all away. The dirtiness of their humbled state, the reason for the humbling, the sin and its consequences are all here in view, cleansed and washed. Now, does that mean that the consequences and everything that happened because of your sin is gone? No, they'll still be there. But in such a way that they are a blessing and a remembrance of the washing. Yes, they'll still be there. I'm reminded of so many things. How many times have people accidentally had a children accidentally, right? Through sinful means. Does the child get erased in God's cleansing? Absolutely not. The child doesn't get erased. And it becomes the very witness to the couple of the goodness and grace of God in their lives. You see, he washes, removes the stain thoroughly, made clean, and that by the mighty work of the Holy Spirit who is described here as the instrument of this act. He is the spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, instrumental to the purging of what's called filth and blood, dirt and guiltiness for their violent actions. Remember at the beginning of Isaiah, they they were those who lifted up their hands and were worshiping the blood on their hands. He's going to cleanse it. It must have been, I think, something like the experience of the early disciples in the church at the beginning. They looked back at their folly, the way they heard Jesus' words and misinterpreted them in wild ways and wanted to call fire down on their adversaries and, and even abandon the Lord at His greatest hour of need. They sinned. Yes, they, they forsook Him. They, de- they denied Him. But with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost... All of these things are brought to remembrance. To their condemnation? To their great sorrow? No. But to their joy and hope and confirmation that God was even working those things out for their good, for their humbling and His exaltation, His discerning judgment, setting apart that which was dross and burning it away for their good, their joy, and His glory. And when the fires had finished their work, there there was left behind the sweetness and the clarity of His judgment. His judgment. They were sinners. They were. And He could save them and did. They were lost. Utterly lost. But He went and found them. I was blind, but now because of Him, I see. God meant all the evil, even even their dumb choices, their hard-hearted wandering, all of it for good. And if He did it for them, surely He does it for us. And I'm sure a number of you know it already in your heart as you hear me say it. He who hovered over the face of the primordial waters, He is about the business of forming and making something new in the midst of it all, beyond their comprehension. But oh, it is good. And that brings us to our, our fourth point, the creation 
that God works. He makes a new home. He names, He records, He washes, and He makes a home for you. Verse 5, then it says, the Lord will create. That's the verb used, the exact same verb used at the beginning. When God created everything in the span of six days, God creates, He creates a place where He will dwell with you. Where He will dwell with you. Those who are without a name and one of their reproach removed get a name and have their reproach removed and more, they get to dwell with that man. Even as something of a spouse. And I think we see this in three parts, this creation. It's one part for God and two parts for you. Which shows again His generosity. First, the prophet says, Isaiah says, God will create, it says, over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, that is the gathered congregation of those who are named, recorded, and washed, a cloud by day, smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know what this reminds you of. It is language of the book of Exodus, is it not? As the Lord once brought His people out of Egypt, so He is about to do it again. And that, that work is itself described as creation when you read through it. Creation, recreation. He will create a second exodus, another people, another deliverance from bondage, but this one somehow greater and more majestic and powerful and far-reaching. This creation, it will include a place for His presence to draw near God who dwells, where? In the midst of the cloud, and in the midst of the smoke, and in the fiery flaming furnace. We see here, I think, if we weren't careful, just something of a description of, of a big cloud that shades us from the sun, and fire at night that keeps us from the scary darkness of the night. But if you remember, in the book of Exodus, these things were never those things to the people of Israel. Not at all. When the cloud descended upon the tabernacle, they didn't go and find shade in its, from, the, from the, the sun. No, they stood at their tent doors and they gawked at the fact that God had come down in a cloud in the midst of His people. And when smoke and fire appeared on Mount Sinai, they didn't go and congratulate each other they could see at night. No, they trembled and cried out for Moses to go for them into the presence of that one because we don't want to go near him at all. They were, they were the very signs of the presence of God in their midst. He descended upon the place of worship, presided upon the mercy seat as he had upon Mount Sinai in cloud and smoke and flaming fire. And it was this very presence in that place that kept Moses from being able to go in. He couldn't enter in. So the creation of these things means that the one who comes with the spirit of burning and judgment, the holy God, is the one who is coming and dwelling in your midst. The one who is consuming fire. The one who fights the enemies, yes. But also the one who opens up the ground and swallows up rebels in the midst of the congregation. He who is the one who caused the Egyptians to be struck down in the midst of the sea and all the Israelites were, were delivered. But He's also the one that caused the whole first generation to die in the wilderness because of unbelief so that the second generation could come in. He is the one who strikes dead Ananias and Sapphira at the feet of Peter in Acts. He who fills the sanctuary with His presence so that none can enter. 
even Moses, none except the priests, and that with blood. He is here. And that is not a happy thing necessarily, but a fearful one. A thing that causes us to tremble. Even us who are named and recorded and washed, we need something, some means of safety before the presence of this holy God. And He gives it to us by creating for us a place to dwell with Him in His place alongside of the cloud and smoke and fire, or in fact, above it, a safe place. And it's described for us in two ways. First, for over all the glory, He says, that is the glory of God's manifest presence, there will be, it says, a canopy. A canopy. That doesn't help us at all. What in the world is he talking about a canopy? It's weird. You drive, if you've read through it before, you, you notice it. King James translates it a defense. It is the word actually that's used for, if any of you have seen a Jewish wedding, the sheet that's pulled out and hangs over the bride and the groom as they go through the wedding service. It's called a chuppah. That's the word here. The chuppah. It's used only two other places in Scripture, and in both those places, it's the chamber from which the bride and the groom emerge. A place closed off from public view. We might even call it something like a honeymoon suite. It is where the marriage is consummated. Over the glory, He creates that. This place, over the cloud, above the pillar of fire and smoke, in the highest places, he makes a chuppah, a secret place, where bride and groom are made one. Each believer, I think, knows what this place is. It's where you go every time you kneel in prayer. You draw near. Nobody sees it. Can you see the place? It's a secret place. But it's the place where you know you are his, and he is yours. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. It is a place where you and I come to know that we are Christ's and He is ours. Hidden from the eyes of man, but so profoundly true that it moves your every step in your life. And it is in that very place and the union that happens there over all the glory where we find confidence, confidence, boldness to draw near to that God who dwells in that place and we do so and are received Remember, Jesus says in John chapter 13, He says, I have a place where I'm going where you cannot come yet. But you will come, He says to Peter. A place. Well, what, what place? Peter asks it. We might ask it too. But the way that He prepares the way to go in is by finishing His work, which is the work of Him going to the cross and suffering and dying and His blood preparing a new and living way through His flesh where we can enter where no one else could enter before but priests with blood. Now all of us have free access into that place in fellowship with God. He has made it for you so that we might be with Him where He says, I am. He's prepared it for you. You who are named, you who are recorded, washed and joined to Himself through His Son, in the chuppah. It's a place called marriage, and therefore permanent. Come, He might say, and enter, and find peace there. Now, some of you who are more pragmatic might say, okay, okay, but how? How do I do that? Sounds good. It sounds a little mystical, but how do I do it? Well, I think Isaiah helps us. In verse 6, he adds something. Remember, there's two things that he makes for us for God's one thing. And he says, there will be a booth. A booth. You see, the permanent place of marriage is given for you now in a very impermanent place called a booth. A temporary structure. God gives you, He creates it, 
a house made by human hands, rickety and full of holes where the sun shines through and the, 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 the rain drips through. And in that place, by faith, you can enter and find the chuppah, the place, the secret place of marriage. And I think what he's talking about here is nothing less than what we're doing right now. The church, a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Come here by faith, by faith and find the promises of God freely given and a name, a place in the book, washing and that secret home that he's made yours through Christ our Lord. These are all yours through him who loved you and offers them, them to you. Come by faith and perceive them and have them. For he who is here is called the branch. Verse 1 or 2, excuse me. He is beautiful, is he not? And glorious. And these blessings he offers that we've just quickly passed over, these are the fruit of his land. And they are yours if you will receive them. Who come to this booth and find in it the hoopah, where you as a bride receive your husband as Lord. May they, his name, his recording, his washing, and his new creation be your pride and honor as members of the survivors of Israel who have laid hold of him for help in your time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful to you for these wonderful blessings that are beyond compare that Isaiah seeks to describe to us. Oh Lord, may we not only know them by the hearing of the ear, but by the renewal of our hearts and minds and even the reality of our experience. Oh Lord, that we might know what it is to have fellowship with you in the secret place of union with your Son and the hope of resurrection and the fullness of these things to our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.